Hey, Joanne. What's up, Joanne? Tonight, we're going to October 1806. This is an old case, oldie but goodie. And there's a reason I want to do this case. But let me just give you this guy's name. And number one, tell me where we're going tonight based on this guy's name. All right. And number two... I feel like you're setting me up for something with that statement, but okay, play along. And number two, try to guess what this name means. And I'm not going to tell you the first name. It's the blank because it's the actual country. He's known as the Matchenschlotter. <laughs> I'm going to go with M- Germany. Matchenschlotter. All right, tonight we're going to Bavaria in Germany, October 1806. This is a very interesting case. October 1806, I'm starting with a Barbara Reichinger, young peasant girl, unmarried but very hopeful. Like hopeful that she will get married? Now, now this girl we're talking about tonight, Barbara Reichinger, is not a prostitute. But at this time in the 1800s, being what she was applying for, a servant girl, was looked down on just as much as being a prostitute. A servant girl, and that's why it actually comes full circle here. Here, a servant girl would wear the the maid outfits, and why do you think you see those outfits like in the sex shops and on and Halloween things? It was like looked down on like a prostitute to be a servant girl, huh, like a milkmaid type thing. Yeah. So anyway. But back in the 1800s, before the Industrial Revolution, you had no other choice if you wanted to, to work and you're, you're a woman, especially in Germany. Because huh. Germany, ain't no way a woman's going to do anything besides serve. Barbara Reichinger, young peasant girl, she's unmarried, but very hopeful. In Germany in 1806, if you're a female, especially a poor, from a poor family of poor stock, that is your dream to marry some ambassador or some you know, someone wealthy, a landowner, mm-hmm. anyone that owned land, you know, that is your dream. So that's what you look forward to because you're a female. You're not going to work. So you are relying on whoever you marry to take care of you. End of story. So it's really important that you know if you're going to marry someone rich or someone poor. You know what I'm saying? That's like my dad always says, like, I'm so glad my son's married up. <laughs> And then I'm like, well, that means you married down <laughs> because <laughs> anyway. No comment. All right. So Barbara Reichinger, 18-year-old servant girl, she goes to this local clothing shop in town and she meets the two owners of the shop. One of them's name is Andreas Beckel and his wife, which this excited me to death because I've never actually seen anyone. I've seen this name, but I've never did a story with a name like this. Her first name is Frau. Are you sure that's not just Mrs.? No, it's Frau. Oh, is it? Yes. <laughs> oh, fuck, really? Yes. Oh, I'm fucking stupid. Frau is like Mrs. <laughs> Fraulein is Miss. Oh, fuck. I don't know. I don't speak fucking German. All right, whatever, dude. Okay, I'm going to cut that. This girl, so Reisinger, she goes to this clothing shop and she meets Andreas Bickel and his wife, Frau Bickel. Which, if you guys didn't know, means misses. Frau means misses. I don't know if you guys knew that. If you didn't, you're you're fucking stupid. So this was a, a tailor shop and everything in this store is secondhand clothing because 
this is in a small community and no one buys new clothes. This is like a Plato's closet back in the day sort of thing. They also sold fabric and they they made like shoes Mm -hmm. for, you know, whoever and they sewed up stuff. They did all kinds of stuff. Barbara Reisinger, she goes to the shop because she wants an employment. She wants to become a servant girl or do something. The village she's in is kind of small, but maybe this local shop can have her sew something. She needs to do something. She's very, she's one of those people, one of those um, teens that want to conquer the world, but you know, they're just always kind of active. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. She She walks in the door and meets the two owners of the shop. Now, the wife of the shop, Mrs. Bechtel, is actually leaving. She's delivering fabric to another village that is that is a neighboring village. And so so she tells her husband, hey, can you take care of this and interview her or whatever? So he says, yeah. Now, when the wife returns later that night, she notices some things are out of sort in the shop. The first thing she notices, because she slips when she walks into the shop, is the entire floor is covered in soapy water. Odd. You don't want to use too much soap back in the day because it's expensive. So the fact that not only is the water, which comes from the well, is all over the floor. There's also a good deal of soap, too. It was like her husband was scrubbing something. Mm -hmm. Now, he says to his wife, he says he dropped this bucket of water and that's all it was. The next day... Barbara's father, Mr. Reisinger, goes to the shop because he knows that his daughter was there the day before asking about work. He meets the shop owner and this man, Andreas Bickel, tells the father that, oh yeah, she was here. Very sweet girl. Very sweet girl. You know, I unfortunately couldn't hire her. I don't, I don't, we don't have any work around here, but you know what? I did send her to Nuremberg, which is neighboring. Mm -hmm. And I found a position for her there. I knew a guy in the fabric business who had some to work to be done. So I sent her there and apparently she got the position. How convenient. So the father, I don't know if he was skeptical or not, but he does leave. Two weeks later, he receives a postcard from Nuremberg from his daughter. She had fallen upon great luck. She had met an ambassador. And now she's writing her father because she's getting married. It's a quick turnaround wedding and she needs some of her finest clothing sent to her. And cash? So, no, no cash. Oh, okay. This postcard from Nuremberg didn't ask the family to attend the wedding. It simply asked if they would send her best clothing. And she was request. And she was getting married. So the parents were skeptical. Now, keep in mind, they also were illiterate. So I seriously doubt they could even read the writing in the postcard. Plus, Barbara was also illiterate, couldn't read or write. So I don't even know how she would have penned that note to begin with. Probably probably would have had to have asked somebody to read for her and someone to write it. This man, Andreas Beckel, shows up at the parents' home a week after they got that letter. And he begins scolding the father. Why didn't you send your daughter her clothes that she asked for? So he's like, what? So this guy... How would he know? ...is scolding the family. Now, keep in mind, this family is lower class, illiterate, and they're just common folk. So they finally relented and gave him all of her best dresses because he was going to pass them along to Barbara. All right. So what do you think happened to Barbara? She did. So so what does the police do? Mm, I'm going to say nothing. 
I wanted to say this. Virtually nothing. One of the reasons I want to do this story is because it has set the precedent for more stories we do around this time period because the police then were a lot different than they are now. Police now protect the public. Police back then did not protect the public. Their interests were with the wealthy. Mm -hmm. The police back then, their only job was to keep the lower class in order so they wouldn't disrupt the the wealthy, the people that are actually bringing in money. Mm -hmm. So they don't solve crimes back in the day, or at least for a poor family. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Because, and this is different from today, obviously, but... If you suspect that your daughter was killed by a local tailor shop owner back in 1808, you're not going to go to the constable and convince him to go search and get a you know search warrant and DNA and all that stuff. That just doesn't happen back then because there was no because the cops back then didn't actually actively solve crimes unless you paid for it. So, and here's what I'm trying to say: huh. if the family wanted the police to arrest Andreas Bichtel for the murder of their daughter, here's what they would have to do. The family on their own time and dollar would have to collect their own evidence. They would have to present this evidence to the magistrate. If that magistrate accepts the request, then the family would then have a case. The family would have to pay court fees, would have to pay for the police to arrest Andreas Bechtel, would have to pay any lawyer fees and even a fee to the magistrate before they can even start the case. You know what I'm saying? So even if they win the case and he goes to prison, the family is still out of a lot of money. That's how it was back in the day. Because the police... The police now protect the middle class. That's basically what, well, they protect all classes. But back in the day, there was no middle class. It was just really poor people and then really rich people. I guess that's kind of like it is today. But you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So you'd have to do all that work. It's just not worth it. That's crazy. Yeah. So that is one of the things from all these other episodes, because I want us to do some Jack, Jack the Ripper Whitechapel episodes. And that's the same thing. That was a little different because it was all in the newspaper and the police felt pressured. they had to. But they didn't, though, you know? They wouldn't have had it not been so sensational. They wouldn't even have looked. They wouldn't care. Interesting. I mean, not that they wouldn't care. They just, that's not their responsibility. Yeah, they wouldn't have done anything. Yeah. That's interesting. So when the, the Industrial Revolution happened in the early 1900s, that's when it created a middle class and the police then were kind of restructured to protect everybody, right? That's how it works. Mm. Let's talk about Katharina Lytle. This is about a year and a half later, February 15th, 1808. Now, she was more of, of, of a wealthy stock. She was more more privileged. And she actually visits Andreas Bichtel because she heard that he was also a fortune teller. And he has a magical crystal ball that can tell anyone's fortune. Mm -hmm. Now, what I didn't mention earlier is Barbara Reisinger, when she, we don't know she's dead yet, right? Right. When she actually goes to request work, Andreas, the shop owner, convinces her to, to get her fortune taken. But we don't know that yet. So we're going about a, a year and a half later, February 15th, 1808, Katharina Lytle. Okay. Okay. Like I said, she's from more wealthy stock. She's more privileged. Her family has money. Basically, if she was to go missing, the family could pay the magistrate. They could pay the police to arrest this guy. They could actually do something. 
she hears that there's a man in town that is delivering fortunes. And although a lot of women were sketched out by it and decided not to get their fortunes foretold, she is very interested. Because like I said, even though she's more privileged, she still needs to know if she's going to marry a a rich man or not. That's what the fortunes were back in the day. It's not, am I going to be rich and successful? Am I going to get a new car? It was, am I going to marry some rich man or not? That was the fortune you would get. So he was also on top of selling fabric and being being a tailor. He was also a de facto fortune teller, much like Katie Bender in the Bender Mm. story. Mm -hmm. Remember, she was doing the same thing. It was kind of a racket that was easy money. You didn't really have to be trained or anything. It's it's kind of like if you go into go into a little shop today and they have a fortune reader and you put in a a quarter. It's the Mm -hmm. same thing. It's a little bit of money that they can make on the side, and you know it. It's just something to do. But these women actually really wanted to know if they were going to marry some rich man or not, because that that was on their mind. Sure. And And they really, really bought into this. So she actually goes, not looking for work like Barbara did, she actually goes to get her fortune foretold. And she didn't return that night. Her sisters knew that she went to get her fortune because she has been waiting for this and talking about it all week, and they got sick of hearing it. So she, they know where she was last, uh-huh. and they know that she didn't come home. Mm-hmm. They go tell their daddy and the mama, and the whole family goes to the constable. Well, first they go to Bechtel's shop, the tailor mm-hmm. shop, and ask around. And he says, no, I haven't seen her. She didn't come in here, anything like that. So he's denying it. But they have this weird sense. They have, they know he knows more. This magical glass, this fortune-telling ball, this crystal ball, was nothing more than a piece of wood with a cheap magnifying glass attached to it with a, a rusted screw. So he would darken the candle, you know, put, he has this big black sheet in this little set separate partition, and this little piece of plank with a magnifying glass attached to it would be sitting there on this table. And that was his setup. Anyone other than an 18-year-old peasant girl would know that this was some kind of scam. Mm-hmm. This is literally just a magnifying glass attached to a board. But that's what he did. From the Paul Mall Gazette, September 1888, quote, She went to Beckel's house to peep into the magical glass, and it had not been seen since. Moreover, Beckel's wife had sold some clothing which Barbara's friends recognized as having belonged to the missing girl, the possession of which Frau Bichel accounted for by saying that Barbara, having married a rich man in another part of the country, had no longer need of her peasant costume. It further appeared that Bichel had obtained from Barbara's parents, who were densely ignorant and credulous, the rest of the girl's clothing by saying that she had got a good place in a distant town and he would send it to her. So now, Katharina's family is extremely worried. They do have the money for a full investigation here. Mm -hmm. So they convince the constable and the magistrate to open this case. They go to the home of the Bikels, and they're asking about them. Now, they know some things around town. They know this man already, because it's a small community, and they know he's quiet. He's 
to himself, the wife never leaves the shop kind of thing. They're not hated, but you'll never see him at the local alehouse partying and drinking. You'll never see him. He was just quiet, but he wasn't really creepy in any way. I mean, he was getting women to come do their fortune, you know, so he had to have some sort of charm. So they know this about him. But when police were talking to him, they just got this really, really bad feeling that he has done something to these women. And at one point, he actually tries to discard a a handkerchief that was sticking out of his pocket. He tries to discreetly discard it. And when the constable pulls it out of the trash can and asks the Lytle sisters, hey, do you recognize this? Yeah, that's my sister's. That's our sister's fabric. Mm -hmm. So right then, they know something. So they go search his home. Back then, you didn't need a search warrant or anything. They search his home, and they they didn't find anything besides both the women's clothing. That's all they found. There was no body. There was no blood. There was nothing in the shop, which is also the home. There's nothing in there mm-hmm. besides the, all their clothes, right? Right. But they could have bought those clothes at a market. Right. Or That's what they said anyway. So the police weren't satisfied with this man's answers at all, and... They really wanted to get to the bottom of this. They caught him in several lies. They kept going back to his home and searching it, still finding nothing but clothing, no blood, no nothing. Yeah. Now, this is the first time I've ever seen this. This is kind of uh, crazy here. One of the constables would always come and he had his dog with him. It wasn't a bloodhound or anything. It was just kind of a mutt that it was like his best friend, like house dog. Mm-hmm. And this was before search dogs was the thing. But he kept noticing on one of the outbuildings owned by the Beckles, this dog would run over there every time they went to search and he would be pawing and scratching this wood and whining trying to scratch his wood off. Now, at first, they were like, what are you doing? Stop doing that. But he, this dog did it every time they went to talk to, to Andreas. Every time this dog went over there to this outbuilding, they asked him, what's in this outbuilding? Why is this dog doing that? Oh, it's probably just a dead raccoon or something. That's where I keep my firewood. Yeah, okay. Yeah, maybe. Eventually, the constable's like, open it up. And what do you think he saw? A bunch of firewood, right? Um, how about a body? Can I buy a vowel? Before, the dog would scratch on the door. And also, not only would the dog know something's in there, but Andreas, he would start sweating. This is what the police would say. He would start sweating. He would try to push the police on, you know, stop. Why are you harassing me? Get out of here. Get your dog out of here. And he would be be visibly upset over something. So eventually, they did open this outbuilding. This put him on the right track. He had the wood removed and buried in the ground under the wood were found parts of a human body. Beneath a heap of rubbish were found other remains and finally the bodies of both the missing girls were disinterred, frightfully mutilated. It was evident that after killing them, the murderer had disemboweled them and torn out their hearts. There's a move that law enforcement does still to this day, and it works wonders, especially with child killers. Now, it it works with all murderers, but the move is this, and they still do this today. If a killer is having trouble confessing to his crime, what you do is you bring him back to the location of the crime scene with the body still there, untouched, and you get him to talk about it in front of the body where he can see it. Somehow it messes with their psychology and probably introduces a level of guilt. Mm. And it works well. And it's been working for hundreds of years. They've been doing this for a while. They still do it today. Interesting. 
but it did work. And Andreas eventually confessed and he confessed more than they wanted to. But here's what he says. Barbara Reisinger, the first one we talked about, was killed when she went to request work. He says, I don't have any work, but would you like your fortune read? She said, yes. Okay, I do a ritual. There's a certain ritual that we have to do. And this fortune is going to tell you if you're going to marry someone wealthy or if you're going to marry a pauper. So you have to listen to everything I'm telling you and do it exactly like I'm telling you. I want you to go home and get your three finest dresses. You have to have three. Come back and the ritual is in three different parts. So you do the first part in your first dress, the second part of the ritual in the the next dress, and then the third in your other fine dress. Very elaborate. It's very elaborate. Do you see a motive here for killing? So he is a tailor and he runs a shop selling used clothing. The motive is clothing, right? He's he's This is a weird reseller story, I've got to say. <laughs> The, the motive is selling used clothing. <laughs> well, that's one way to flip an item. So bring your three best dresses. There is no three-part ritual. And they're only going to get to part 0.5. They're not even going to, I mean, obviously, you know. Well, no, he wants to at least get to all three so he gets all three dresses. No, she, she, brought br- them. she brings in the dresses. So anyway, bring in your finest dresses and come into this little partition. Let's wait till my wife is out on, on a delivery first. Is the wife in on it? Um... The wife was Frau. the wife was um, not convicted or sentenced because even though she, I don't think she knew, but she what she was selling the clothing and she knew the clothing was of these women. So, but you know, if it was like more than two and this was going on for ten years, they would have got her. Mm. There's another story that's similar to this where that happened, but since she she really didn't know, and and plus he said that she didn't know, so they let her go. But anyway. So get your three finest dresses and sit down on the table. Now, don't touch this crystal ball, this magnifying glass, basically. Don't touch it. It's extremely important that you remain still during this whole thing. Now, the candle is unlit. It's kind of dark in the room. You know what? It is so important that you remain still. I cannot stress this enough because this could ruin your life if you were to touch anything or knock something off the table. So for good measure, let me just tie your hands behind your back. That way you will not tip over anything and this will be a success. Right. Also, if you look into the crystal ball yourself, it will completely dissolve the fortune. It will never come to fruition. So it is best if I just blindfold you. Oh, right, you can see how desperate these women are to find a, a good man. If they're gonna Man, I think there are people today that would be going for this. They'd be like, oh God, yes, please don't send me on another Tinder date. Dear God. <laughs> Uh, if Jen were here, she'd be like, go on. Yes. What do I need to do? So he says that, and and they both same, same motives, the same way it happened. Now we only know of two he's killed, but I will say they found trunks of other clothing from women that have been missing. Oh, trunks. But remember, like I said, these poor families, they can't, they can't afford to have they the can't police afford, look at this. Exactly. So they, you know, and they got them for two murders, so they're good, right? I mean, they found two bodies, which we'll go into. But as soon as she sits down, either one of the victims, and she's blindfolded with her hands behind her back, immediately she she doesn't hear anything. 
She doesn't hear any magical goings on. And then all of a sudden, boom, she's either like in Barbara Reisinger's case, stabbed directly in the thorax or in Katharina's case, hit on the head with a hammer, blindfolded, hands behind the back. Like I said, his motive at first was to sell these clothes for profit. However, this case was revisited when psychology became more and more of a thing because they noticed, okay, yeah, if you're just killing these girls for profit, what's the deal with these headless torsos we're finding in here? You know what I'm saying? Like, what's the deal with that? So they did revisit them, which we're going to get into because this is kind of unique. Anyway, in the outbuilding, under some straw and some litter mm -hmm. was human bones, okay? Also, there was a lower half of a human torso, and beside that lower half of a human torso, there were cotton rags, blood soaked all the way through. Now, this is just in the outbuilding, on the floor, behind the firewood. These rags were holding two human legs, which was one of the females. Mm -hmm. They were wrapped in these cotton rags and just sitting there. The lower half of a human torso with legs wrapped in cotton rags. In the other corner was a headless torso, and the head was actually severed and found next to it, but it was heavily decayed. It, this was Reisinger, and the only reason they knew that, the first girl, the only reason they knew that is because of her earrings. Her sisters identified her earrings because ah. she was so decomposed. Think about it, this was a year and a half Ooh, yeah. later. No wonder this dog was Ugh. was going crazy, right? I mean, a year and a half, a year and a half goes by, and she's in some cotton rags by this firewood, and she's just decaying her head. The only way they can identify her is through her earrings, you know. Mm -hmm. All right, so you have two, you have two torsos here. Both have their arms on them. Mm -hmm. Now, here's where things get confusing, and here's where things kind of get more interesting. The corpses were actually split. Like, you know, when you cut someone in half, you, you just straight across the body. But these torsos and this upper half was split from the neck down, longitudinally down. Like you split them this way, which is if you're trying to sever someone's arms to dispose it, you don't you don't do that. It doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. Like sawing someone this way. Well, you look at me like I'm crazy. Do you understand? Mm -hmm. Okay. They were both sawed in half vertically, mm -hmm. like from their head all the way to their crotch in half. All right. You get it? I'm with you. I'm questioning why someone would do that, but... Andreas used a knife, the first knife that was in Barbara. He stuck immediately in her throat, and then he would use a knife to hit it in there, get it as far as he can, and then he would just kind of rip it down in this kind of motion like this, like sawing type of motion. This knife was not very sharp, right? Why go through all that trouble? Well, so that's the thing. That's the thing. But they didn't ask that question at the time. They just saw, okay, this guy, his motive was for some clothing. But why would he go and do this? It didn't make any sense. And he didn't really understand it either. From the physician's report, quote, neither victim was dead or mortally wounded before she was cut up. So they weren't even dead yet. They might have been stunned by a blow on the head, but it could not have been mortal. Neither was the stab in the neck sufficient to have produced death. The deaths were occasioned by cutting open and dividing the body. They died from getting split longitudinally down vertically. That's how they died, getting split like that, right? Let's look at this dude's confession. This is really interesting for this case. If you think this guy is just doing this for money, 
to sell for clothes or for clothes. And I want to say Andreas Beckel, known as the Bavarian Magdenschlachter or the Maiden Schlotterer. Maiden, you know, like a maiden, like Iron Maiden. The Bavarian Madenschlachter. Yeah, go ahead. On the day of the murder, I sent for Katharina. And when she arrived, I said to her, since we are quite alone, I will let you look in my magic mirror. But you must go home and fetch your best clothes so that you may be able to shift yourself several times. When she had returned in her common working clothes, carrying her other things in her apron, I rolled a white napkin round a board. I rolled a white napkin round a board and brought a spyglass, both of which I laid on the table, forbidding her to touch either that or the glass. I then tied her hands behind her with a bit of packing string, the same which I had used for Barbara Racinger, a bound handkerchief over her eyes. I then stabbed her in the throat with a knife, which I had in readiness. I had a desire to see how she was made inwardly. Okay, hold on a second. What? Okay, wait, 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 wait. Oh, oh. He, wa- he wants to take a peek at her inside. Okay, okay, so wait. Did this not turn it up? Like I mean, it's weird. Like little John, turn it up. Read that last sentence again, because this is insane. I had a desire to see how she was made inwardly. Okay, now keep in mind, this murder right here was one of the first, and there was like one more before this one that was big and kind of the same thing, but one of the first that started this new type of phenomena of serial killers, the Rippers. Jack the Ripper being the the most, the climax being Jack the Ripper in 1980 or in 1888, the Whitechapel murders. But what what was it back then, right? Like, what? what they like, didn't know. These killers, they just had this desire to see what a human body was like on the inside. Is they, it because they didn't have anatomy books back then? Is that because we go to anatomy classes and stuff as kids and we like know that there's a heart and lungs? I mean, this guy is like literally curious I mean, about what he looks like on the inside. Definitely a morbid fascination. And so you have this this rise of the rippers. Oh, that's a cool name right there, rise of the rippers. And for this purpose, I. I took a wedge, which I placed upon her breastbone, and I struck it with a cobbler's hammer. I thus opened her breast and cut through the fleshy parts of her body with a knife. I feel like people that have this curiosity today just become doctors. Yeah. I know. Um, um, <laughs> They're like, I'm just going to go ahead and be a surgeon if I'm this curious about what the insides look like. I know um, um, H.H. Holmes, he was a medical doctor, and he was very curious about that. Also, Leonardo da Vinci was extremely curious. Why do you think his photographs of the human body are so detailed? Like the calf muscles and everything else. The Vitruvian man. What he would do is he would dig up corpses. This is true. All is true. He would, or not dig up corpses. He would buy corpses from the, you know, the local mortuary. And then he would study them. He would study these corpses and he would cut them open. And that's how he would know where the anatomy is. And that's how he drew all these things so great. And that's how how he had a heads up on or, or a leg up on a leg up on that's how he had a leg up a on leg it. Up. <laughs> oh we're terrible um oh so courtney says um she's curious to to uh see the inner workings of someone's brain so just like her she's ready to cut someone open just for the brain i'm pretty sure that's what it says i uh i may have i may have altered her words a little bit i began to cut her open as soon as i have ever stabbed her And no man, however quickly he may pray, could get through his rosary or say ten Hail Marys in the time it took me to cut open her breast and the rest of her body. I cut up this person as a butcher does a sheep. 
chopping the corpse with an axe into portions, which would go into the pit, which I had already dug for it on the hill. The whole time I was so eager that I trembled and I could have cut out a bit and eaten it. What the fuck? <laughs> I didn't see that in there. <laughs> he wanted to. He said, I, I, the whole time I was so eager that I trembled and I could have cut out a bit and eaten it. No shit. It says that in there? Yes. <laughs> Does it really? He ate it. I Maybe. I swear to God. He doesn't say he ate it. He says he thought about it. Research this guy. You will see nothing that he was a cannibal. And I didn't read his confession. I, I waited till this. That's the first time I've seen that. That is fucking nuts. <laughs> I mean, if he's saying that, that means he thought about it, which means he did he it. He definitely thought about it. Which means he did it. Wait, why I would, don't know. Why would someone bring that up? Let me keep reading, okay? Why would you got bring a little bit more to left here. When Seidel had received the first stab, she screamed, struggled, and sighed six or seven times. As I cut her open immediately after stabbing her, it is very possible that she may still have been alive when I began cutting. I buried the fragments of the body after having carefully locked the doors. I washed the bloody shift and gown belonging to Seidel twice and hid them from my wife as a cat tries to hide its young, carrying them from one place to another. I like that. That's a good analogy there, you know? I put the other bloody things into the stove and burned them. My only reason for murdering Reisinger and Seidel was the desire for their clothes. I must confess I did not want them, but it was exactly as if someone stood at my elbow saying, do this and buy corn. (laughs) (laughs) Do this and buy corn. (laughs) And whispered to me that I should thus get something without risk of discovery. (laughs) Do this and buy corn. (laughs) I mean, I do also love corn on the cob. (laughs) So isn't that crazy? I didn't see the cannibal thing. That's nuts, man. But I don't know. This is uh, one of the rippers. You know, this is a very mild ripper. There's some some that are especially the servant girl slayers. Yeah, we've done a few of those. Like I said, they they get pretty bad. Remember? Servant girl annihilator. Yeah. So anyway, I hope you guys enjoy that. It's kind of... Kind of small. Like so what a, happened to uh, him? Oh, so he actually got lucky because if he would have did this a year before, he would have gotten uh, tortured on the the torture wheel, which is a big wooden wheel, and they stretch you out on yeah. it. <laughs> but uh, the Napoleon era kind of stopped that whole torture thing. So they did a more humane death for him, which is beheading. Nice. But yeah. Cool. And his wife got off scot-free. I mean, he did say he was hiding it from her in that in that paragraph, so. Yeah. <laughs> Do this and buy corn. <laughs> Wolfie said she's at the store and she's staring at some corn right now. <laughs> Wolfie, <laughs> do this and buy corn. <laughs> That's stupid. <laughs> I didn't see where he said the cannibal thing. It's fucking hilarious. He thought about it. Which means he did it. I'm just saying. You don't just bring that shit up. You know and what? I could have eaten it. I think everyone that... I have. I think everyone goes through that, you know? Of like, if you, you kill ca- someone and you're like, eh, should I have a bite? Yeah, I think so. I mean, if you're <laughs> if you already crossed so many lines... You're cutting into the body, all this jazz. You might as well just put a little bit of that meat in your mouth just to see, man. No, I mean, you've got to have an iron stomach for that. There are some times where if I'm like not really feeling it, like I'll get all of a sudden really nauseous about something, you know? Even if I've just like had too much dairy, I'm like, well, you you wouldn't be a good killer then. No. So anyway. I would not have a desire to consume them. All right, that's that's, uh, that's that story. (laughs) 
Well, there you have it, friends. Yeah. So we we may be back for another one this week, maybe. Yeah, we we're gonna be on on Thursday, so we'll do that one for you guys, Supremo only. Cool type of stuff. Cool, cool, cool. Anyway, that's all I got. So that I hope you guys enjoyed the uh, the Bavarian Madenschlag law. All right. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed. Until next time. Good night, you lovely, lovely people. <laughs> <laughs>